0: Heavenly Father blessed be your name Lord thy will be done in heaven on earth Lord we come weak it's been a rough week for most of us some of us battling our own desires our own internal wars Lord I pray you come now, meet us where we are. Lord, through your word, let us hear your voice. Not the messenger, but the message. That you are a great God and that you pursue us no matter what. So, Brother Jesus was saying, those who hear his voice, come to him. He will never forsake us. That is our God. Even when we fall short, and we will, Lord, we need your grace, abundant, everlasting grace. It is in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Beloved, open up your Bibles to the book of James. We are in the book of James. We are in the fourth chapter already. Would you believe it? As I said in the past, it's a short yet powerful epistle. Let us read today from verses 1 to 10. Now, this will be probably, we'll have a part 2, possibly part 3. This is, for me, and for many theologians, the second most important passage in the epistle of James. It comes with a dire warning, but as we progress, we'll see there is abundant... Grace. Let us read. I'll read verses 1 to 10 for context's sake, but we will preach only verses 1 to 3. Amen? And the word of the Lord says What causes quarrels and what causes fights amongst you? He said, Not this, that your passions are at war within you. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You are adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, And he will flee from you. Very important now. Draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning. And your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And he will exalt you. That is today's reading. God's word. I'm going to start with a definition of worldliness. Kevin DeYoung defined worldliness as such. Worldliness is whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. Now in today's passage, James is unpacking for us a problem that was happening with the early church. Which is still a problem today. It is the problem of worldliness among Christians. Remember, we have been going through the book of James, and we are reminded that he's a pastor of the newfound church in Jerusalem. And through persecution, the church scatters through the diaspora, neighboring towns and countries. He was concerned that a flock without a shepherd will drop back, backslide to previous attitudes especially befriending the world. James is concerned that the world's practice would slither slowly through the church. That's the reason why James writes this small yet powerful letter. It is a warning against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. It's a letter, a warning against all sorts of worldliness. I stated before that I believe the most powerful and most important text in James, in the book of James, is found in chapter 1, verse 18. Which is, of his, own he, or of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. We see God's everlasting grace granted unto us, not by the will of man, but by the will of God. But here's the most important passage. This one this morning. This is the essence of the doctrine of grace. Where God in eternity pass, intercedes and grants grace as a gift to the elect. Unmerited favor. Those who place their faith in Christ not by their own means and strengths, but by the power of God in them, they will become children of God. That said, in today's passage, we will find what I believe to be the most important warning in this letter. Look at verse 4 for a minute. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. What a warning! What a reminder! This is a definitive statement, and a very frightened one at that. James understands the severity of this statement. He was an Old Testament theologian. And he understood the repercussions of being an enemy of God, which we were at one point. The Old Testament is filled with terrifying promises to those who are the enemies of God. Let me give you an example, or at least two. Isaiah 42, 13 says, The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his seal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. That is our God. In Nahum, chapter 1, verse 2, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. James wasn't trying to scare us. We are his friend. But what a reminder. What a reminder for those who play Christianese. For those who check Mark going to Sunday school, Sunday services, but their hearts have not drawn near to the Lord. Especially practicing the world's beliefs within the church. It is a reminder for the believer to take grace seriously. One cannot be a double-minded Christian, be a friend of the world, and be a friend of God. And although the world, for the most part, is not an enemy to the idea of God in a sentimental way, but it is a biblical truth that although you may sympathize with God or the idea of God, the biblical diagnosis for men is that you are an enemy of God because you are a friend of the world. In other words, if you're a friend of the world, you belong to the world. Today's message only, not only comes with a warning but a message of hope That even if we find ourselves in the lows in our Christian walk, even when we act like the world does, God still pursues His people with grace. He calls His people to draw near to Him, finding joy and all life's provisions. Amen? Today's sermon title is, Flee Worldliness, Drawing Near to God. And I'm just going to go, one point this morning, and we're going to look, take a look at the cause of worldliness, the root cause of it, in verses 1 to 3. Now last week, our brother Arturo Perez, so graciously and awesome, exegeted for us the, diff- the key differences between the law of God and the law of grace you couldn't hear our brother last week, please, I urge you, go back to our Facebook, to our audio, listen to it. It was edifying. We learned the true purpose of the law. It is to point us back to the Savior. But it also makes, makes it evident that we have a problem, don't we? And he said, the problem is me. I am the problem. And I love that James starts with that. He's very astute. He always points us back to our problems. I am the problem. My problems is not circumstances or exterior conditions. It is far greater than that. It is that my very being is in, has inherited Adam's sin. Making me an enemy with God. This is exactly what James is unpacking for us this morning. Take a look at verse 1 and 2. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain. You fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And if you ever thought that James was all about the exterior behavior, you got it wrong. James is deeply concerned with the internal position of our hearts because out of it flows what truly is in there. So James addresses the main issue to the church when they revert back to the problem that I am the problem. Theologians and commentators differ on the reasons why, the, why church members were arguing and having quarrels and disputes amongst themselves. The text gives us some hints. It might have been the issue of not having some material necessities or some newfound success in the new lands they found in them, themselves in. Some brothers might have been more resourceful or skillful and might have found themselves creating new businesses and finding some sort of success. While others might have struggled more to adjust to the exile of their native country, now to find themselves clashing, fighting and bickering against one another. look at verse two: "You desire and you do not have, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel." It's not that they were literally killing each other. It's the fact that they were hating one another for each other's possessions. James is so concerned of the internal, that this resonates with John's calling in his first epistle. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So it's not about the exterior, it's about the interior, the heart. And this is what James is suggesting in verse 1. You do these things, why? Because of your own internal struggles. Your own ambitions and heart desires. So he answers a question with a question. What causes issues amongst you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Now in the Greek, James uses the word members. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within your members? In other words, your very being. All that you are. This is a reoccurring theme in the book of James, distinctions and fights amongst believers. Again, there were class conflicts. The rich were being honored in the church services and the poor dishonored, dishonored by giving them a lesser attention. We find find that in James 2. The rich were withholding wages from the poor. James 5. There were leadership issues as some, uh, as some were selfishly striving for teaching positions within the church. James 3. And as we will will soon see there were personal conflicts as people were slandering and speaking evil things of one another in James 4. James summarizes that all these fights derive from selfish ambitions and desires that are, are war within the believer. And that when we give in to these ambitions... We practice worldliness. We make worldliness out to be an exterior behavior. Whether we smoke a cigar or drink alcohol. And yet these things might have their, their merits. What we see, what we consume, what we see in Netflix. Yes, there it has its merit. But James is deeply concerned with the heart matter. Worldliness, beloved, is the regression to our selfish desires and what we do to attain such pleasures. James is instructing us to be mindful of what is capturing our hearts. Because when we don't get what we want, the outward outcome will be striving, coveting, envy, Jealousy and more. What truly takes a hold of your heart? Material things? Is it having a nice savings account? A healthy 401k? Your utmost desire is to have the perfect family maybe. Maybe achieving accolades. Getting into the best school possible. Can be as honorable as being the, the best provider for your family. Yet James says these things, can, these things can become worldly passions. If not centered on Christ. Look at verse 3. You ask and do not receive. Because you ask wrongly. To spend it on your passions. Desire. Desire. All together, it's not wrong to desire things. Desire becomes sinful when we revert to our pre-Christ worldly passions. That is, I exist solely for the purpose of meeting my needs and my desires. You might not have said it that way. But deep inside, that is all, that, that's all we want in our fallen nature to meet our desires even in our new creation state if we don't submit our desires to the Lord we may regress to our worldly thinking therefore James says you desire things but you do not obtain them because your heart is in it for yourself and the heart is so deceitful, beloved, that we may lie to ourselves and think that our desires come from a place of godliness. If I had the big house that so and so have, and I will use it for fellowship and for God's purposes, I've heard that too many times before. And sometimes the heart really wants is to feed its pleasures. This is why James is alluding to center our desires and comparing them to Scripture. Asking ourselves, is this what the Lord wants for me? Or is it really what I want for myself? Don't misunderstand me again, brothers and sisters. You may have life desires, good desires. You may Want to be a successful business owner. Stay at home mom. You may want to be a, a leader at church. Things are inherently good. But you have to submit them to the Lord before taking matters into your own hands. See, beloved, because when these things don't come into fruition, then we start to grumble, gripe, start to fuss and fight because we didn't fulfill them. And worse yet, we start pointing back to God. We alienate ourselves from God. The proper posture on desire is this. That if, that even if you don't attain it, your joy is still in the Lord. Now another president in this passage is one of double-mindedness. Minded, and being an adulterer with the faith you've been given. The great danger that once someone attains all they can from the faith and the gospel, then they depart from it. What do I mean? Once the gospel does not fulfill my joy any longer, the desires of this world start to take a hold. When Christ is no longer Lord, over my life, something else will grab hold. Something else will grab lordship over my heart. Then the heart starts to wither and backslide to attitudes that were once present prior to the supposed conversion. A heart that has a continual desire to attain worldly pleasures will depart from God's will. For their lives. In other words, James is telling us that the more we spend our our energies and resources to fulfill ungodly, worldly desires, we will start to see a backsliding in our Christian faith. When producing more, when being better, but I I have to get everything together, Darren, you don't understand. No, I do understand. I'm a sinner myself. That's therefore we need Christ. And the danger is that some who have pros, professed will be of evidence that not everybody that profess Christ are known by Christ. Let's look at, take a look at the parable of the sower and see what Christ has to say about desires. In Mark 4, verses 18 to 19. Christ says, Explaining the parable of the sower, he says this: Because if we ever want to get someone's opinion, it's Christ, amen. And he says this. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires of other things enter in and choke the word. And he proves unfruitful. Jesus uses an imagery here of reverting back to slavery. The imminent danger of ungodly passions is that if you pursue them with enough ungodly passion, you start to see a separation and a denial of the grace by which was freely given unto you. worldliness it's not merely an exterior act yes worldliness will manifest manifest itself outwardly but it manifests what's in the heart first and as you can see from the very examples that James provided believers were fighting amongst themselves and envying themselves because they could not attain their passions Therefore, they reverted back to their own foolishness and previous sins. Some even denied the faith. Henry Jacobson said this, The essence of worldliness is exclusion of God. You want to be a friend of the world? You will eventually depart from the face of God. You cannot have it both ways. And as we will see in the next passages, God is a jealous God for his people. He will not share in his glory with anyone or nothing else. This parable teaches, again, the parable of the sower, the dangers of pursuing passions and desires. Just like the rich young ruler, remember him? Who outwardly was moralistic seemed like he had everything under control, but when he was confronted about his passions and desires, don't touch what's in here. Jesus, this is where the line is drawn. You could be lord over everything else, but not my desires. What happened? What does the Bible say happened? He went away, disheartened by by the saying. He went away sorrowful. For he had great possessions. He thought he was a believer. He believed to have kept the law all external. But when Christ confronted his most inward desires. Then the kingdom of God became secondary. I love all, all, you, all you are, Jesus. I love, yes, I love Christianity. I love church. I don't oppose none of it. I love it. I go to church, yes. By my desires. Oh no, that's mine. Stay away. That's exactly what he did. And I said, we will find out in the following verses, God does not share his glory. I said that. He's a jealous God. Now, the Bible doesn't say anything else about this young man. None. One could only hope. He later repented of his sins and believed in Christ. But what one can gather is that his passions and desires were so fixated on his heart that he denied God altogether. Now, I wonder... At the fact, that if that young man were alive today, with the same circumstances, rich, wealthy, maybe an entrepreneur, maybe a banker, maybe a lawyer, a doctor, famous and successful businessman, maybe. I wonder if the same message Christ relayed onto him back then would have been the same message he would have received in 2023. Well, depending on the church this young man was attending, I could tell you he might have been receptive to a gospel, not the gospel. See, this is why I find the gospel of prosperity to be the most harmful and the most direct attack to Christ and His church. Because when we are told to live your best life now, It tickles the ear to the sin that we already battle within us. It stirs up our wants. It engages in our pleasures and desires. It plays perfectly with what we inherently desire. Wealth, health, fame, fortune. To be desirable, admired after. That prosperity gospel teachers have led their followers to live a life of worldly pleasures more than the fulfillment of the gospel and God's kingdom. If that young man would have been alive today, he would have been a faithful attendee to one of these massive, lukewarm prosperity teaching churches. He would have been the perfect member to tithing, collaborating if his desires are met. And his possessions are untouched. Another principle we gather from these three verses is the self centeredness of our lives when we pursue our desires rather than God as your provider. James says, You do not have because you do not ask it is evident that the pursuit of desires will ultimately lead you away from the Lord. I said that before. When all your time and effort has been spent, guess what? You have no more time for the Lord. When your mind is set on worldly pleasures rather than the maker and then the provider, we find ourselves with a bunch of excuses. I have no time. I'll do it later. It is evident that the pursuit of desires will ultimately lead you away from the Lord when your, uh, your time is spent. And you know what's the first Christian discipline that goes away? Communion with the Lord. Prayer time with the Lord. That's the first one that goes away when we are leading to our desires and our passions. In other words, we stop communing with the Lord. We neglect the spirit of the Lord that indwells us. We tell God, you are no longer needed here. You cannot help me in this situation. I got this. We are so self-centered and seeking after our passions. We revert to the self-reliance mentality that we once possessed. When we were saved by grace, it was easy to understand grace. We loved grace. And we accepted it easily too. But sometimes when we don't get our way, we revert back to our mindset of a checklist, moralism, self-dependency, taking God away from the equation. And we forget that grace is and will continue to be a gift from the Lord. Even through our satisfaction, Grace is something that the Lord continues to bestow upon us. He will not leave us or forsake us. He will provide. Continuous grace is that is this, beloved, that He continues to pursue us even in our shortcomings. Even when we've thought we've messed up so bad we can't get out. Even when I've messed up in my finances. Even when I'm a horrible parent. There's grace for me yet. Look at verse 6. We will expand more upon this, but let's read. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is important, beloved, because self-centeredness is part of a boastful and proud spirit. The church was going through their rough patches, yes. Some were not attaining their hard desires. They were reverting back to their prideful passions. They quarreled. They fought because they became self-reliant. They stopped asking God for their provisions, they, say uh, they set their eyes on the success of, of others rather than ask God for their own provisions. Now this fits perfectly with our society today. This Western society which is materialistic in nature. We as believers tend to revert to our own passions. It's hard, I know. It's hard to see others attain things. And why don't I have these things also? It's hard. I work at a bank, and I've said this many times. And for me, it's a struggle. My wife knows. To see millions in a customer's account, I'm like, "Man, you have. Can you share the wealth? Man, I want that too. Man, I want that brand new car. It's hard. It's hard hard not to want things others enjoy. It's hard not to take the, you know, not to take the dream vacation." or buy the second home, or build the pool. It's hard when we are in, in a difficult economy, and you might not have enough savings to keep you from defaulting on your debt, especially when you see others succeeding, and you're not. Beloved, if we were not drawn to God in submissiveness, submissiveness and nearness, we too can revert back to a self-reliant heart. And I got this mentality I'm self-sufficient mentality. Proverbs 3, 5, 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. James says that some of us don't have because we don't ask. And worse yet, we don't ask Properly, we ask with mean mind. I need, I need, I want, and it is okay to need and want. God invites us to ask Him for our provisions. He welcomes us, but most importantly, Jesus taught us to pray such like this: "Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name." Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us our daily bread. The focus is God's will for our lives. God invites us to ask Him. He wants to be our provider, to draw near to Him for our provisions. He won't deny them unless it's not aligned with His will. A Christ-centered heart will always welcome God's will in our lives. So come, draw near to Him, and you'll have your needs met—not being abundance, but what you need. But when we ask with the wrong motives, and our desires are not aligned with the heart, with His heart and His desires, then. You he will hear a no. Notice the arguments and quarrels that happened and still happen today amongst us in the church happen when we hear a no from above and we are stuck on our selfish desires. We hate hearing a no from God. Sometimes when we don't hear a yes, We tend to turn back to our sinful desires. And and when we do that, all sorts of malice and evil come out. When we are unsatisfied with the maker, then we tend to set our hearts to the created things. Then all sorts of arguments and envy happen. That's when we become a part of the problem and not the solution. We start to ser- we start to serve less and less at church. We draw back from fellowship. We start to be overcritical and not submissive. We start finding wrong within the church. Oh, I don't like the, how the, the music sounds. Oh, I don't like the paint. Oh, I don't like the carpet. We become part of the problem and not the solution. Oh, the youth miss- ministry doesn't have enough outings. The preaching is long and boring. We start creating excuses not to use our God given talents. Beloved, and I see this very often in churches. When we are not focused, when we're focused on the material, on us, on desires, on my retirement, on my well being. Godly things. Take a back seat. I'm going to conclude here because I have a minute and 35. This this is a two-part, probably a three-part sermon. I didn't want to simply fly through the text. I, I believe, like I said before, this is probably the most important passage of the epistle, aside from verse 18, chapter 1. The reality is that we will fall short in this area. We will fall back into desiring some worldly pleasures. We haven't made it yet. This flesh still lingers. But James' message is not of one of moralism. In fact, he points out the obvious. Number one, that we are the problem. And always be the problem until our Lord's return. James affirms that in this epistle multiple times. He wants us to understand that we are forever dependent on Christ. That aside from Christ, there's nothing we can accomplish. That we just don't wake up one morning and decide to walk on our own. But I'll see you tomorrow, Jesus, come back. That just doesn't happen. James is ultimately describing what a genuine believer ought to look like. Yes. He will give us instructions and do's and maybe don'ts, but not out of a heart of self-reliance and self-confidence. If it were that way, James would preach about the world. Because that is precisely what the world teaches. You can obtain it all. Anything you put your mind to. Be better, do better. Rather, James is pointing us back to the cross. An ever-present reminder that the cross not only saved me from my delights and pleasures which made me an enemy of God but also keeps me on shedding light on my ongoing walk with the Lord as James puts it God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble come to the cross Come to the end of your life, to the end of yourself. Empty it. There's nothing good in it. And embrace Christ as your sufficient Savior. For if you humble yourself, He will exalt you and give you everlasting life. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, the word has been preached. Lord, I pray. At least, it has grabbed the attention of our hearts and point us back to Christ. Lord, it is easy to get it confused, to get it twisted, Lord. That we have inner strength, that we could do it, that we are capable. But James just showed us that that self-centered mentality, Lord, will lead us only to fights quarrels disaster Lord therefore this is why we need you Father we need the cross ever to be ever present in our lives on a daily basis Lord remind us of the gospel of grace we need you Lord allow us to be focused on you Lord let, us, let you be our first love not the world which so easily entices us. Lord, let us draw near to you, Lord. But first, Lord, draw near to us because we need you. We sometimes don't have the strength. Father, I pray for this church. I pray, I pray for their hearts that you may be their all in all. That aside from you, Lord, there, there will be nothing else, nothing needed, nothing required. Only Jesus and him crucified. Thank you, Lord, for today's word. Might be a blessing in our hearts. May it bring about repentance if we were failing you in, in, in this way. We don't want to be an enemy of yours, Lord. We don't want to be a friend of the world. We are your children, and we need you, Lord. It is in your name we pray. Amen.